I'm Katie Bennett-Stenton, a senior B2B marketing professional with a real interest in digital transformation, change management and developing amazing content. I live in Melbourne, Australia with my husband and two mostly delightful children, though I've got to say the second stint of homeschooling is testing that one. Having worked in marketing roles in the UK, US and Australia, I've met many inspiring people and benefited enormously from the power of network and community. In this Katie Talks podcast series, I uncover the stories of influencers sharing their thought-provoking business and leadership insights. My guest today is Richard Yetzinger, Chief Economist and Head of Research at ANZ, a role that he has held since 2016. Richard's writing reflects his interest in the interconnected nature of the world, including business, economics, technology and society. And I have to say that's become even more evident in listening to a number of presentations that he's given since we all started working from home due to COVID. Richard, welcome. Hi, Katie. It's great to be here again. Great to talk to you. Really good to talk to you again too. Thank you. Now, I'm interested, just before we kick into some more of the, um, the economic focus questions, how has COVID impacted you? Look, I guess in a way I've been really lucky. I mean, the, the workload's gone up, which, you know, um, sometimes has felt a bit insufferable, but obviously in, in the grand scheme of things, I've been very, very fortunate through this period to do a job where the demands have gone up as the world's become more uncertain and, and the, the, the work environment has become more difficult for so many people. So actually I'm very thankful for that. Um, and look, as, as someone said to me, you know, we were talking about his family and he said, well, one of my boys is an introvert, so he's been training for this his whole life. That probably describes me a little bit. Um, <laughs> so, I'm, you know, I'm quite happy um, to some degree not being in the office and just kind of getting on with things. Um, I have to admit, I wouldn't kind of mind if the world was a bit closer to normal today than it is. Um, mm -hmm. but, I think, but I think overall for me, COVID's been uh, kind, of, kind of intellectually a uh, um, attesting, but but also in a way interesting period. Well, I, I think from listening to a number of presentations that you've given, it it's become ever more evident to me that the that interconnectedness is is so much stronger than than probably I'd ever sat back and and thought about. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think I mean even what even you even think about, for instance, um, in a in a, well. If we think about inequality in the world, inequality when we look at planet Earth has declined substantially over the last half century as countries like um, China and, and India um, have kind of emerged and poverty has fallen there. But inequality within countries have, has almost uniformly um, become worse. Um, and, and this crisis has exacerbated that. And part of that reflects, you know, just social mobility, the, the ability for you know, one of my children to end up in a kind of a, a, a better or higher um, income or social class than, than they began their life, um, that's diminished in a whole range of countries. Um, you think about the whole idea of a lockdown in COVID is that you only move within a very um, kind of small geographic area. Um, that's just one aspect of COVID that actually is, you know, worsening um, these inequality issues. And I think that's a legacy we're really going to have to face from as we come out of this. Mm, quite aside from the part that perhaps people who are lower down the socioeconomic food chain or, or you know, perhaps working casually are disproportionately impacted by, by 
closures and and those shutdowns and not being able to work from home. There's no question about that. I mean, look, it in a not that there's ever really a normal recession, but in a normal recession, in inverted commas, men um, often as the primary income earner are typically affected more. Um, this has been quite a unique recession, where, as you say, Katie, because of the nature of the roles which have been affected, actually women have been disproportionately affected. And of course, they're at an income disadvantage already. They're at a savings disadvantage. They're at a financial independence disadvantage. Or, or you even think about the impact on the labour market on the one hand, particularly in customer-facing roles, often which, as you say, are part-time or casual or second jobs or whatever. Mm. The performance of that aspect of the labour market versus the equity market um, you know, if you happen to have a, a kind of an income portfolio with it, which is asset rich, um, it hasn't been a particularly bad crisis, all things considered. Sure. Richard, would you say for you personally that there have been any positive changes for you over the last few months working from home? Look, I think I think for me it's probably it's kind of crystallised a few things, and and from a kind of a work and personal perspective. I think your focus has really narrowed right down. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not going into 242 Pitt Street, um, moving, you know, between the different floors of the building, going out to see different people. Um, and so the way I can influence, um, you know, the, the kind of through the relationships I have through work um, has become kind of much narrower. What can I do for the bank has become much narrower. Um, connecting with friends has become all quite interesting. <laughs> So I think I think in a sense it's it's kind of narrowed the range of opportunities and choices we all have, and in some ways, look, I hope made us focus a bit more on the things that are actually really important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, your current research and analysis has identified four key areas which will or are already benefiting from COVID, and we're going to spend a bit of time in this podcast delving into them. Let's start with inequality. Talk me through what you're seeing on that front. Look, I think, I mean, crises always change things. And when I say that, you know, I don't want to give the impression, you know, the economic world we live in will be unrecognisable afterwards. That's not how it works. Things change at the margin and, and they take time. But certainly I think that inequality issue is, it was already crystallised before the crisis. We could see it in politics. I mean, in Australia, for instance, we've got an incredibly divided electorate now. Yes. Um, you, know, you know, if you look across the age spectrum, for instance, voting patterns are, qu are quite divergent between younger people and older people. Um, and, I, and I think, so it was already there, but I think COVID's really crystallised this inequality issue. Um, um, you know, the, the withdrawal of super um, is concentrated in people younger than 45 years. Um, Katie, you mentioned the income shock and what's happened mm. to that in terms of certain occupations. Um, um, and yet, as I mentioned, the, a lot of the policy response, as it typically is in Australia, is focused on um, protecting the value of, you know, housing collateral, um, trying to make sure financial markets don't seize up and cause supplementary and secondary problems through the economy. And I, and I think, um, you know, those, those issues are really going to have to be confronted. Um, I, I think they're going to reveal themselves again in the way kind of voters engage and the way issues are debated um, once we get through kind of the, if you like, the panic period of COVID. Um, so I don't think we're going to have much time to kind of rest on our laurels around that. So do you, do you see that that 
well, if we talk about Australia, that that we stand to be in a more positive place? Look, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's, this inequality issue is a, a kind of a real challenge because, um, you know, it, it challenges often the way our tax systems are set up. I think, I think it, it, it challenges kind of what's happening at the ballot box. Um, I think it, it, it causes countries, it's changing the way countries behave towards each other um, and technology is linking people. I mean, you know, um, the old saying, six degrees of separation, the idea was I'm connected to um, everyone in the world through only six relationships, kind of hard to believe, but actually yeah. they say, look, that, that used to roughly be true. Well, now apparently it's 3.56, Katie. Um, <laughs> but the thing is I'm connected I'm most connected to people that have similar views as the world to me there. Unless I work really hard at it, they tend to be the people on Twitter I follow. They tend to be the friends I accumulate on Facebook. Um, they tend to be kind of the, the, the things that come across um, my immediate kind of digital vision. Um, and, and so I, I think that's tending to propagate some of these issues among disparate groups across the world. Yeah, I, I listened to a really good podcast with Madeleine Albright recently, an Atlantic one, and she was she was talking about this um, this issue and and the fact that she listens to to sort of right wing shock jock radio on her way to well in pre COVID days on her way to work in the morning, and you know if anybody happened to sort of spot her in the car, she she could. He seemed to be making some slightly obscene gestures at some time, but <laughs> which which I um, I quite like to, to to just imagine what that might look like. Um, but but I think that's really important. My my husband, for that reason, and partly to um, because he thinks it's hilarious because it's so di divergent from my views, will often put Fox radio on in the mornings in our house, um, which I have to say certainly tests the boundaries. But uh, it is important, isn't it, to to take the time to listen to people with completely divergent views or or media or news from them? Look, it, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it even doesn't it apply also in personal inter interactions? Somebody mm. might say something which which you think is at least partially outrageous. And, you know, the one response is to kind of get your finger out and, and turn it into something um, uncomfortable. And the other response is, oh, that's interesting. Um, why do you, you know, tell me more. Why do you mm. think that? And partic particularly when people use the word believe, you know, I don't believe in X or I do believe in Y. Well, believe, that's an interesting word. I mean, do you, is it about belief or is it actually about trying to understand the issue and look at the evidence? Um, and... and you know, unfortunately, I mean, if, if you read Rutger Bregman's um, fantastic book on, on humanity, um, and he's the young Dutch fellow who I think in, uh, he went to Davos last year and um, caused quite a stir speaking about mm. tax and wealth. Um, but he his book is fantastic and he has really usefully wrote a great book about how, you know, that human nature actually is, is better than we give it credit for. Um, and he has 10 useful rules at the back. And one of his rules is, you know, um, don't follow the news because he says the problem with kind of the nightly news or the daily news or your Twitter feed or whatever it is, is you tend to get stuff which, um, um, which is a concentration of what somebody else thinks will be newsworthy rather than actually, you know, seriously thinking about the issues of the day. So that doesn't mean you don't expose yourself to issues, but you're just quite deliberate about it. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to have to go um, 
read that book. It's a great book. It's, it's well worth the time. Thank you. Now, Richard, technology is the second theme that you've identified and you, you touched on it there. What, what are you seeing on that front? Well, I mean, if you think about economic sectors, um, and actually I, I call technology a sector, but it's not, it's not really anymore. Um, um, if you, large companies, for instance, typically now the chief technology offer has a seat at the leadership table at the executive committee. He doesn't, he doesn't, he or she does not sit under corporate services. Um, they're an integral part of not just helping the business do what it wants to do, but actually being part of deciding what the business will do. Um, so I think tech used to be a sector, but to the extent every every business sector and households and us as consumers now buy more technology, um, it's increasingly, I think, more a macroeconomic influence. And you can see it in the way some of these tech companies have performed. So if you look at the six large US tech giants, for instance, um, now only only three of them produce any hardware at all. Three of them are entirely um, software and digital driven. The market cap of those six companies is now larger than any non-US equity market except China. So mm. those six companies, for instance, are worth more than the entire German stock market. I think you know tech really is changing the way we do business, the way we consume. And even the way that we interact. I mean, if you consider, for instance, the Black Lives Matter protests, which mm. spread extremely quickly around the world. Um, and I spoke before about 3.56 degrees of separation. Yes. Um, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that they would have spread as quickly with such so solidarity without social media as we understand it. So it's I, I think technology is affecting us directly through business it's affecting us indirectly through politics it's it's affecting the way we interact with each other i think tech it's it's here unambiguously and if if we sort of look into that a little bit more i mean since we've we've started working from home in well february or march depending on where you are based that that surely has only become much more pervasive and completely um, integral to, to, to how we all live our lives, given that, you know, most people in the world at the moment have varying um, restrictions on them in terms of how much movement that, that we're all able to have and, you know, even just being in the workplace with people. Do, do you think that'll continue to speed up or become more well, impactful? That's a really good question. I, I'm, I'm probably still a little bit in two minds. I certainly think... Um, a lot of companies tried to practice practice flexible working, and I think ANZ had done a fantastic job. But but COVID's obviously taken that to another level, and I think really opened up the full range of possibility. You know, ANZ can have nearly forty thousand people working from home, mm. um, and the bank does a pretty good job. I, I think as 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 time goes on, though, um, how do you introduce new people into your ways of operating? How do you build a culture? Um, how do you ensure that over long periods everyone's pulling in the same direction if you have as little kind of group contact as we've been having the last six months? I think that probably suggests we're not going to move to this kind of COVID extreme as a, as a BAU, at least not for most businesses and most mm. sectors. But I think we're going to look at 
what is what attachment do I need to my physical workplace? I think we're going to look at that quite differently and think about it much more deeply. Well, absolutely. I think you know there there are some examples of of teams doing fantastic stuff in terms of continuing that connectivity. But I, I heard you make the point uh, very recently about what or raise the question that what what might happen to to new graduates or new people joining an organization or how might people be impacted sort of longer term in this sort of working style in terms of career development i mean those those elements there doesn't seem to be a neat easy solution to that 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 exists in this current world of of everybody working remotely no, I don't think so. And, and, and look, it puts a premium on good leadership, of course, because um, in, in, a, in an office-based culture, you know, if you have some people that are technically very strong but may not be the, necessarily the best leaders, potentially you can camouflage them a bit. But obviously when everyone's working remotely, you, you, you really need to focus on connecting with people and um, connecting with empathy. Um, and so the premium on that, I think, goes up. Um, and I think also this question around, you know, why do we kind of all traipse into the office in any case? Um, and why do we do it at, at often at meaningful distance from our primary place of residence? I mean, that that really goes back to the idea of, well, I want to separate work and home because for two reasons. Um, well, the first, the, the main reason is because the work I do is noisy and um, probably polluting and I don't want to be particularly close to it with my family. But secondly, mm -hmm because probably one person from the home went out to work and so you could have that separation. Increasingly, obviously, with um, multi-income households, uh, the travel is a complete pest. Um, and, and actually, there's no real requirement for that sort of separation the way we used to have it. So I think, I hope we can think about town planning and, and how we separate different aspects of our lives and do that in a way which actually um, suits everybody rather than than the kind of an old model of there being a primary breadwinner and everybody else uh, kind of tails along. That's that's a really interesting point that you make, Richard. I mean, in, in recent years, there's been an increased focus on the 20-minute neighbourhood, which is all about living locally, you know, giving people the ability to meet most of their daily needs within a 20-minute walk from home, um, a focus going back to small hubs and local shops. Do you think that this will evolve? And if it does, do you think that that will be a positive evolution? Look, I would I would have thought it would be. I mean, I, look, we all like to say when I was young, you know, X, Y, Z was better. Um, <laughs> yeah. But certainly my sense of, you know, one of the places I used to live, all the corner, it had a few corner shops. Um, they're all cafes and restaurants now. And sure, they're important for daily life as well. But um they don't fulfil the most functional needs, do they? Uh, no. And and um, there's a great US academic who writes with great passion about cities, whose name Glassman or Glassman, I think. Um, and he wrote a great book which which kind of lauds cities as as particularly from an environmental perspective, this great invention which actually we probably demonise too much. And I think this that kind of 20 minute radius you talk about. Um, um, you know that that's a, a concept which applies to cities. It's not a kind of rural concept, is it? Where distances no. are much greater and you need to travel. So, um, I, I hope so, I, and it it kind of should. Mm. Well, I mean, if I if I think about my 
my own experience uh, since since we've all been working from home, there's been a significantly increased focus on on our local area and and supporting the local community. And and I mean, I, I to my mind, that's incredibly positive. Yes, mm. although it, it is, but the the potential downside of it is you're coalescing more within a particular socioeconomic group and spending less of your time. Yep. Seeing other, seeing other other parts of the city you live in. I, I, I mean, I don't want to say on the one hand on the other, but I guess I'm saying on the one hand on the other. Um, <laughs> You're allowed to do that. But, but it goes back to that social mobility thing. You know, um, um, I think it's really important we kind of get around and, and, and see other things. To go back to your Madeleine Albright example, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that is a very good point, linking back to the earlier conversation. Excuse me, Richard. We've seen some photos of Asian cities of late that are usually shrouded in smog and are now crystal clear. Um, the global climate emergency was obvious before anybody had heard or heard of COVID nineteen, and it does stand to benefit in a much deeper way. What What is your research showing around the climate emergency? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I had a call with somebody yesterday who was a who was a, 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 um, a geopolitical risk expert, um, and it's interesting. His perspective was, if we didn't believe the scientists on climate change, hopefully, you know, we've learned to believe the scientists on COVID. So hopefully, there's that trust starts to rub back the other direction, and the climate scientists start to get the respect that we need to give them. Um, and and I hope this something in that. I, I think certainly what COVID shows us is when the natural environment does something which is radically different from our lived experience, the way we've set our economies and lives up just can't cope. I mean, it's, it's not that we couldn't have economies and, and ways of living which can function with COVID. It's just that the way they've set up um, are, are really in conflict with what COVID wants to do. So I, I hope we're, we're more environmentally focused. I, I don't think, I don't like to say it's about believing the scientists. I think it's about um, leaving the evidence. Um, and it, it seems to me there's plenty to say we've got some issues here we, we really need to move on. And of course that involves change, but um, it doesn't mean it's worse. Of course, from a climactic perspective, it'll be better, but even from an economic perspective, I think there's lots of opportunities for different countries, um, as well as you know parts of their economy which will need to adjust. Mm. I mean, if we remember back to what, in retrospect, seemed almost like the halcyon days at the start of 2020, when we were horrified by a whole lot of really dreadful bushfires, uh, you know, there, there seemed to be some really interesting dialogue amping up in terms of insurers looking at um, bushfire and climate and and a whole lot of what I thought were really encouraging discussions about climate becoming much more prominent in, I guess, the public discourse and then uh, COVID-19 hit. So that, that sort of shifted away a little bit. But it's, it's, it's interesting to me, I mean, we, we talk about having conversations with people with divergent views. Uh, one friend that I was talking to recently who I discovered uh, with with horror doesn't believe in climate change, uh, similarly thinks that uh, that COVID-19 is, is amped up and, and frankly 
a bit of a hoax, which was a, an interesting correlation to draw there. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. Well, and you know, from a from a new energy perspective, there there seem to be some really interesting conversations at the moment happening around um, moving to a lower carbon future, which which does seem very promising. Look, Katie, you you use that believe word again, and what that I think what that shows yeah. is, um, you know, that there is a bit of a correlation in my experience between people who say climate change is not an issue and people who say we're kind of over over egging COVID, um, mm. and, and I I struggle to see how you can have both of those views if you've spent some time thinking about it and reading the evidence and looking at it. They're finding with COVID, for instance, that even once you've re recovered, often People have long-term health issues, um, mm. which 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 persist because of COVID, which can range from um, fainting to digestion problems to um, you know all sorts of different things, and they don't really know why. So, um, you know, COVID may show the symptoms of something that's like influenza, but it's obviously radically radically different. Um, and and on the on the climate, look. There's some simple facts here that, you know, the world's getting warmer. We can argue about whether humankind's causing it or not, but the fact is it's getting warmer and we know we know that water expands when it gets hot. Um, we also know that the vast bulk of humanity lives effectively on the ocean and on rivers because that's where we build our cities. Um, it doesn't take a genius to add those statements together and realise that something bad could go wrong. Um, Miami is the city that's meant to be most affected by climate change. Um, parts of it are already effectively underwater. Um, half of Bangladesh, 160 million people, um, is at sea level. Um, I, I think pretty soon we're going to start to see some pretty disastrous effects, which will bring this into stark relief, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you there. Richard, geopolitics is the fourth area that you've identified as being impacted quite significantly massively through through COVID. We're, we're in the home straight with less than 100 days to go until the US election. Um, keen to hear more about your some of your insights on, on this front. It's, look, geopolitics is a really interesting issue. I think for many of us, we've come through a couple of decades where the norm seemed to be for countries to just get on, for, for countries to make choices for the common good, even if it imposed some adjustment costs on their own citizens. Um, I mean, not without limit, of course, but broadly that seemed to be the thrust. And then in the last decade, gradually and gradually, and then almost with a rush the last few years, it, things seem to have really deteriorated. And unfortunately, I, I think there's a real trend there. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a little story about going back to the 80s, for those who remember mm -hmm. when um, when uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev were negotiating nuclear disarmament in Reykjavik in, in Iceland, and they were apparently on a break, and one said to the other, incidentally, if the world was invaded by aliens, would you come to our aid? And they both agreed they would go to each other's aid. Well, <laughs> the, world's the world's kind of been invaded by aliens, and the two biggest economies have um, actually doubled down on their dispute with each other. So I think if nothing else, that shows us how different is the environment that we're in. I didn't know that uh, that little anecdote. That's about Gorbachev and Reagan. That's, well, uh, look, it, they, it's used as an example of how their personal relationship was important to that negotiation. And I think you, if you read, for instance, about the Cuban Missile Crisis and Kennedy mm. and Khrushchev, Mm. Um, you can also see this kind of human piece in it where once once one of them decided to 
to, to let, not let their ego do the driving and step back, something that, as you know, us men are not necessarily um, bred well to do. Um, <laughs> once, one of them, once one of them found that they could do that, actually that started to diffuse the whole situation. Um, and so Reagan and Gorbachev just seemed to be um, two of the right people at the right time to kind of, you know, trust each other. Um, so, um, you know, hopefully we can find that again. Uh, mm. I, I wish I was that optimistic though. <laughs> yes, it's it's going to be very interesting as we get get closer to um, the November election in the states. Yes, <sighs> yes, which is only three, which is only three months away, just a tad less than three months now. I know it's getting really close. Uh, interesting times ahead. Um, Richard, increasing numbers numbers of organisations are saying that their people will now permanently be able to work from wherever they choose. I'm interested to know what your thoughts are about what what sort of impact this will have to the CBD and the commercial development and real estate market. I think one of the things that you know many people agree on is is the commercial property market is is one of the sectors having a particularly difficult time through this crisis. Um, and it, it, look, it, it is a it is a crisis in. Um, GD in terms of activity and it is a crisis in terms of labour markets. One of the good things is it's not a financial crisis, so we have some things to be thankful for, but that adjustment in work patterns and activity, I think, um, uh, clearly is going to be a challenge for that sector. Um, it, it's a sector which is investment heavy. It's a sector which was probably going to face some pressure from climate-related adjustments anyway in terms of um, how much we build, what materials we use, um, you know, what standards we insist on for insulation and ability to heat and cool. Um, but I think, you know, this crisis unfortunately has has brought some of those um, some of those things forward. Thank you. And and secondly, I'm interested to understand what your thoughts are as to whether or not there might be a positive knock on for for the suburbs or like the place or or places like. Geelong outside Melbourne if, if there's less focus on people or traipsing into the CBD to go to work? Look, I would have I would have thought so. Um, and we spoke about changing patterns of work earlier, Katie. Mm, so I, I yeah. think there's, you know, some of this is definitely going to stick or it might not stick in, in the exact form that we've been kind of working away from our primary place of work, but I think certainly will affect um, attitudes to flexible working on a much more broad-based, um, on a much broader basis. Um, at the end of the day, though, the reason people live in Geelong and work in the city is because um, buying property in Melbourne is expensive. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, one of the things our system of, um, of economic policy has given us um, is very, very low interest rates, which we know tends to build up, bid up asset prices, particularly asset prices that kind of have some long duration implied you know, income component in them, of which property does. Um, uh, that that challenge certainly hasn't gone away. I mean, in a sense, our hands are now more tied because in future downturns, um, interest rates won't be able to go down to kind of help us out because they're already, you know, at, at 25 basis points is the official target. Um, so we're going to have to confront that challenge a little bit more as well. I think I've used the word challenge a few times today. Unfortunately, I think there's a few coming our way. And are we are we thinking lot? Do you have any sense of what sort of frame of time we're talking about with challenges? I mean, the the 
the the um the government's deficit that's being racked up is certainly um well growing that's a that's a bit of a vague question yeah, Richard. yeah no no that's all right the, the, look the fiscal cost of this crisis is enormous and and i think um in a sense the people living through it have been very fortunate that um in a sense there was a gsc playbook already and it's not that rolling out the gsc playbook has been the perfect thing but what the gsc did is take the shackles of policy policy orthodoxy and say actually there's these things you can do um and sure they might have some long-term costs but actually they can be pretty effective in the short term so that allowed policy to move extremely quickly this time which meant that this downturn um um, I don't know what we're going to call it, the Great Collapse, but it didn't turn into a depression, even though um, everything said it should. In fact, you know, Philippines GDP data was out today. I think Philippines GDP was down 16% or something in the second quarter. I mean, that's a depression by any measure, but um, because policy has responded so forcefully, things can bounce back. Um, who pays the piper? That, of course, is the question. And I think that will be the question for quite a period of time. And the problems emerging that as this as COVID kind of goes on and it doesn't, I think we thought it might appear and disappear in three months or something. And now that that's not happening and the tail's proving to be longer, these fiscal costs are, are really mounting. And this is where I think people are really searching for other avenues and modern monetary theory, MMT, I'm not sure why it's called a theory given they say it's practice, but um, you know, MMT looks at the world a different way from a policy perspective and effectively says, if you have a credible fiat currency like Australia does, um, you can run as much fiscal stimulus as you like because the central bank can simply effectively print the currency to pay for that. Um, look, I think MMT has a number of serious challenges, but I think we're in an environment where there's fertile ground for different ways of looking at policy stimulus. Um, and I certainly struggle to see many countries choosing to wind back that stimulus before COVID's dealt with. Thank you. Richard, final question. I'd like to change tack slightly. Um, throughout this pandemic in Australia, governments have um, focused on people who are without a home, moving them into hotels to keep them protected from the virus, which seems to have quite significantly increased the dialogue around social housing. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are around this and, and how do we incentivise more production of social housing? Yeah, let's look. I think social housing is a really important issue. The One of the differences you can identify across countries this time um, of course is what's mattered to the stimulus is not just how much stimulus you've done in 2020 but um, how much you provide for those who are less fortunate on an ongoing basis. Um, and um, I, I think, you know, Europe more and more is becoming a bit of a model for some of these things as we as we step away from the idea or shift away from the idea that just delivering economic growth is enough. Um, having a view and having a policy, having policy settings which influence the allocation of that economic growth are also important. Um, and I think, you know, shifting the, the housing discussion away from housing as a financial asset to housing as a shelter, as a form of, you know, primary shelter and a quality of life issue um, is, is a journey I think Australia probably still needs to have and go further down um, that route. And I, and I think 
um, as people who are now younger, um, and when I say younger, under 35, mm -hmm. um, as, as they progress through um, and start to dominate voting patterns, I think things like social housing will be much more widely accepted and much more well supported. Sounds good, Richard. I hope so. Thank you very much, Richard. I've really enjoyed this conversation today. It's been extremely thought-provoking. I've got a number of books and some more research I'm, I'm keen to go away and explore. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks. That was awesome, Richard. Thank you. There, there's so many elements, seriously, as I just said, that I the books that I want to go and read and <laughs> understand glad. a whole lot more. It was um, it was really thought provoking. Thank you. And thanks for listening to the Katie Talks podcast with me, Katie Bennett Stenton. If you enjoyed this episode, it'd be great if you could take a few seconds to share it and review me on iTunes to help others find this great content.